0: Have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is a Class A licensed contractor who has designed and built multi-million dollar commercial and industrial projects and single-family homes up and down the East Coast. Ken also has owned his own construction company for over 30 years. And now Ken the Contractor brings his years of experience to the radio. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another hour of Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Britt, and we are here weekends at this time answering the questions that are important to today's homeowner. If you have a question about your home, inside or out, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can email your questions to KenTheContractor.com. Ken, what are we going to start with this hour? Mold is our topic today.
1: We've had several questions recently. I'm not sure what has prompted that. So we're going to talk a little bit about mold and mildew. And I've been asked specifically, what's the difference between mold and mildew? Not only do I talk about that, but many others do. And there are a lot of articles that have been published on those. Basically, mold and mildew are terms that we commonly use to describe, we may not know it, but we commonly use it to describe just growths of of fungi on various surfaces, surfaces. Now, in common use, the difference between mold and mildew to most of us is usually the appearance and the surface on which each of these are growing. Mold is often thicker and black, green, red, blue in color. We've seen all kinds of funky colors. And mildew usually is lighter, powdery, and gray or white. And they do tend to grow on different products and surfaces. Mold and mildew often grows in in very moist and warm locations. But mildew is more often found in showers, on paper, on fabrics, and mold is more often found on food products. They come from a similar family. They're still a fungus of sorts. And for many of us, we have allergies to these. Now, years ago, there was an issue with mold that plagued the country, and people talked about black mold. And as a builder, we'd have uh, people inquire about that nationwide, NAHB and others had people inquire about that. There were problems with certain dry, drywall that came from China and so forth. And clearly, some of the mold spores, the type of fungus that's there, can be a health issue to certain people around the country. It's not unlike other products that we have An allergic reaction to but what the industry and research and science has found over the years is that the vast majority of mold spores are not a health issue to any of us mold spores are naturally occurring in our environment they're in our home hopefully we have fewer of those inside our house than we do on the exterior now with that said There are a few things that we can do to help control mold. Number one, you really don't want to have it in your home if you can avoid it. And all of us can take steps to help eliminate that. Mold needs three things to survive, actually to form and survive. And we contribute to those. One, it's moisture. We may not be able to control that totally, but I'll tell you in a moment how we can do some things. Moisture, it needs warmth a certain temperature range, it needs food. And all three of these conditions are necessary for it to grow. It's not going to grow and it's not going to proliferate without all of these. Mold is most likely to find a place to grow in any of our homes and some of the damp areas you would expect, in our basements, in our bathrooms, in our kitchen areas. But other places we don't often suspect, where we'll find these have to do with around doors and windows, refrigerator gaskets, and uh, HVAC or air conditioning units, condensate drains, places we don't pay a lot of attention to. So these mold spores certainly can thrive and they reproduce in this wet environment. If you have had an area that's wet and it's now dry to the eye, you likely still have a condition for mold. An example of that is a wet basement. If you had a basement that has been flooded over the last few weeks or months And you're saying on the surface it's dry, the drywall board looks good, the floor is dry. It's what you don't see that may create an issue. It's the dampness that's concealed behind the wall board in the furring strips between the block or the concrete and that wall board or insulation that is going to harbor these mold spores. And that's the reason we typically see articles in newspapers, TV, hear about it on the radio when there have been massive floods. People are just gutting their basement areas or they're tearing out half of the first floor up three or four feet high if they had water in there. Because you can't just say it's dry on the surface and it looks great. You have all of these mold issues that are developing. Some other areas that mold will develop, and I want you to think about each of these items and how you may be impacted around your home. These are potential food sources that has to do with carpet. Carpet's a great place. If you've got a little moisture, you've got the right temperature, it can develop there. Drapes, upholstery, leather, wood products, clothing. You're saying, clothing, how can that be? you got something tucked away in a drawer in a damp area in the basement, folks. If it's got an opportunity to develop, it certainly can. Paper, cardboard, books. Many of us have pulled old books off shelves and in, in old houses and places, and we found just this green and greenish-black mold growing on it. Mold loves paper. Ceiling tiles. If you've got a basement that has a drop ceiling in it, some of these 2x2, 2x4 tiles, these 9x9 or 12x12 tegular tiles, a great place. It's a wood product, most of these are, and mold loves to develop there. It will also develop on and behind paint. And, yes, I did say behind paint, actually between the paint film and the wallboard or the plaster. So there's so many places in our house we really don't think about that can have a mold issue. Now you say, well that's great. Now that you have me really petrified as to whether I have mold, Ken, what can I do about it? Well the majority of us, I will promise you, have some degree of mold in our homes, and that's what I tell folks that call me. It's what we do to control it that's important. Whether we keep things clean, we eliminate water problems, we seal cracks, We do all we can, if we happen to have a wet basement, to dry that out with dehumidifiers, with heaters, whatever's necessary to pull that moisture out as rapidly as possible, to pull at least one of these three elements that mold needs to thrive out of the atmosphere. So if you can deal with it in that fashion, you're going to be in good shape. Now, mold, somebody else has asked me recently, what kind of temperatures are we dealing with? Because even in some cooler months, I see mold growing in certain areas around the home. Mold is not just a hot weather problem. It can develop in temperatures as low as 40 degrees. So usually from a range of 40 to 100 degrees, you've got the potential for mold almost anywhere that you have these three elements developing. Now, to go back to checking your home, mold is everywhere inside and out. It is possible to have your house checked by air quality experts and engineers, but I'll tell you, it's fairly pricey. The easier thing, I think, for all of us to do is certainly pay attention to the areas I've already mentioned. Do we have condensate drain leaks around our HVAC pan? Are we holding water in the drain pan where we shouldn't be? It should be discharged. Do we have problems around uh, any plumbing fixtures? Do we have leaks in our basement? Do we have outside cold air coming in that's creating a condensate problem in colder months? And so it now has warmth and has created some condensation on the inside, and that's causing mold. Take a little bit of time, pay attention to your house, and solve these problems, and you'll find that as a rule, the majority of us will not have any issue at all. But you need to stop it when you see it. If you allow it to continue, you don't pay attention to it, whether it's your crawl space, basement, whatever, then it's going to grow at an exponential rate. You put more mold spores in the air, and you have a greater opportunity to have some type of allergic reaction. So do yourself a favor. It's not the big issue that many of us thought it was years ago. It can be we can control much of what goes on inside our home in terms of controlling mold and mildew.
0: If you have a question for Ken Patterson Ken the Contractor, you can join our program by giving Ken a call at 800-614-2975. And also, don't forget about our website, KenTheContractor.com. You'll find a lot of very important and also helpful home improvement information right there, including Ken's Toolbox, some of the most popular topics that we talk about week after week on the program right there on the front page. And also, you can click on and listen to audio podcasts of recent programs all online at KenTheContractor.com. Again, our contact number is 800-614-2975. We'll take a break and come right back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. Ken is a Class A licensed contractor who's designed and built multi-million dollar commercial and industrial projects as well as single family homes up and down the East Coast. He brings his years of experience to the radio and the internet to help you answer the questions that are important to today's homeowner. You can join us at 800-614-2975. You can reach us at any time at that number, 800-614-2975. You can dial that number anytime, day or night, and leave. A voicemail question. We've got one of those questions from Rex now. Again, he left his voicemail question for candidate 800 614 2975. Let's see what's on Rex's mind.
2: Um, hi, I'm on my cell phone. I'm probably getting out of your range somewhat, but my question is this if you could answer it sometime. I am building a, a small house and I'm building it uh, slab on grade. I wanted to uh, either paint or stain or acid stain or whatever, the concrete floor, and I wanted to know what the options are for doing that, and is it something that myself, who I'm not a builder, but I'm fairly handy, could could do myself? Um, Again, what are the options for, you know, coloring uh, the the concrete if it's already poured? I didn't do the colored concrete. You don't want to pour it, but I want to stain the floor or, you know, make it decorative in some way to match go with the rest of the house uh and i want to know uh what are the options in that regard and is it something that the homeowner myself uh, that i could that i could do or should i get it contracted out thanks bye well
1: there are two or three questions all in that one and for all of you listening out there you're probably saying you know i've wondered this myself from time to time so i'm glad he brought this up let's talk a little bit about some options that you have first Forget about doing it yourself or hiring someone. Let's just talk about options for making concrete look like something other than the the ugly raw concrete that you're accustomed to seeing in sidewalks and driveway. You don't necessarily want to bring that inside your house. But he asked about staining, and that certainly is an option. There are several different types of stain, and that includes just a solid stain that you apply with a roller or brush that only penetrates the surface of the concrete. There's what's referred to as an acid-stained concrete that's a little more involved, and that tends to penetrate the concrete and leave a variegated color or shading to the top. There is also a sprayed concrete overlay and some of these are used around pool areas, not to be mistaken with a cool deck, but it's also commonly used in patios and other locations that are, that tend to be general use spaces. Then there's a stamped concrete overlay, and that's for those of you with existing driveways, even interior of your home. It's a, It may be a quarter or three, three-eighths-inch product that's applied that will yield different colors, different textures, different patterns for you. You can move beyond that, and if you're pouring new, which he said he was not, his concrete's already down, you do have some options of colored concrete, and that's where the coloring is actually mixed at the plant and batched in the truck. So when you pour it, that color is all the way through that concrete. And then we can move beyond that and go to a stamped concrete, which introduces a color as well as pattern and texture. You can have it look like slate, uh, a tile, any other item that the, the tools are made to mimic, if you will, in a stamped concrete. And then there are applied products. Uh, a granite coat epoxy chip floor is one. Now, this is pretty pricey, but it's one that makes that concrete, that existing floor, look like g- polished granite or terrazzo floor and it can be applied over existing slabs as well. And then there's one that has become quite popular in many of our retail stores, especially, and that is simply polished concrete. You say, what is that? Well, it's concrete that is finished with a hard steel trial finish. It's extremely smooth, and then it is just what it sounds like. It is polished With particular devices, it may be uh, some some diamond bits and other things that go with that to actually bring out a sheen on that. You can almost see your face in it. It is just natural concrete. Nothing special has been done to the mix in most cases, but it is highly polished, just like polishing a stone. Anyway, those are some of the options that you have for concrete. Now, let's go back to the second part of your question. You're thinking about staining this existing slab, and is it something you can do yourself? Many of the items that I just mentioned either need to be done when the concrete's being placed, which is not an option for Rex here, or it's something that you may need to consider an expert, a professional contractor, bring them in and have them do that but to simply do either staining, painting, or even the acid-stained concrete. I think most homeowners, if you've got a basic working knowledge of hand tools and you can read instructions and follow safety standards... This is something I would encourage you to tackle if you're up to it. But I'd always encourage you to take a space, maybe a closet or someplace out of the area, out of the way that's not in general view and experiment with it before you just go out and tackle a a 15 by 30 floor and you find it didn't look too good when you were wrapped up. Always experiment, practice a little bit first. But let's talk a little bit about the acid stained concrete, which has become so popular, not only for do-it-yourselfers, but in the commercial world today as well. This is not unlike painting. All of the work is really in the prep. It's not in applying the stain. It's not in applying the seal coat. It's not in the cleanup. It is in the prep. So step number one is going to be key. First, you've got to clean the floor, and this can include everything from grinding the concrete with diamond grinders. These are diamond blades that are on there to get rid of rough surfaces, to get a good smooth finish on that and then obviously cleaning the floor so that it's dust-free when it's all said and done. Now, if you have some severely damaged spots, you're going to want to patch those before you do the grinding, and Creed and other companies manufacture high-quality concrete patches that, when applied properly, stay in place and do their job. So take care of the damage area that's there first. And secondly, uh, after you have everything prepped, and, of course, during that, you want to cover any walls or areas you don't want to damage as a result of your operation, then you want to spray on the stain and you've got many to choose from from many manufacturers in terms of colors. You want to let that sit, depending on uh, the color and how well it penetrates. You're going to come back the following day, and you're going to pull up any loose area or residue. You're going to let that sit for another day, allow that to dry. Then you're going to come back and apply a seal coat. And there are all kinds of seal coats, from an easy spray-on water base to an epoxy coat that gives you a, 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 a quite a thickness of finish on that that's used in a lot of the commercial operations, but you have all kinds of options. So Rex, I think first, you know, I've told you some of the options that are there. Secondly, I'm telling you that, yeah, this is something you can do yourself if you have a basic working knowledge of paint and construction and you're ready to get up and go for it. I would encourage you to tackle this and do it. For those of you that have called from time to time that have basement issues that are wet every two or three, five years, you get a little water on those, this would be a good option. Now, I've mentioned that to many of you. But this is something I want to bring up one more time. If you don't want to put carpet down, you don't want to have floor tile in place,
0: think about this. One more option. Ken Patterson is Ken, the contractor, and he's here to take your calls, 800-614-2975. And I was in New York City this past week, and concrete is everywhere. Everywhere. But I was really amazed at some of the places that I did go, particularly uh, some of the... Uh, areas that have high-traffic public areas, the different ways in which they do handle this concrete now, dramatically different, particularly in some of the newer buildings.
1: Well, the American Concrete Institute and the industry as a whole over the last two decades especially has has determined we've got to do something other than just sell concrete for structure. How can we bring this inside the home, inside the office building, and make it a finished product? And there are dozens and dozens of methods and products, techniques, colors, and finishes that can be used to make this The end product, that it's also your structure, it's your floor, you walk on it, but the finish is there. No floor tile to be added, no carpet. You're not putting another layer on top, which is terrazzo when you're doing that. It's another layer on top of a concrete substrate. You're not having to spend that kind of money. And the sky... I should say the floor, but the sky is the limit in terms of idea and imagination and colors and textures and patterns. And this, I think, is is really gaining some traction nationwide. It has probably over the last five years.
0: We're going to take a break, and we'll come back. Again, if you have a question for Ken, here's our number. It's 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is a Class A licensed contractor who's designed and built multi-million dollar commercial and industrial projects as well as single family homes up and down the East Coast. He brings his years of experience to the radio and the internet right now to help you deal with the projects you're working on around your house. A house is what you build, a home is what you make it. You can reach us at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. You can also post your questions online at Ken's website. That's ken the contractor.com many of, many of you
1: out there continue to talk about building with sustainable products, those that can easily be replaced through wood products, uh, items that are not going to expire, meaning that once we use them up, like oil reserves, they're gone, and that's the end of it. So if you're thinking about building or renovating with sustainable or green technology, what I want you to do is take a moment and listen to my conversation with architect Fred Esch. Fred's going to talk to us a little bit about environmental design. Now, Fred, you are on the cutting edge when it comes to architectural design, designs that are environmentally friendly, but you're not new to this. Tell us a little bit about your background and your evolution with the overall green movement in home construction.
3: Yeah, I've actually been doing this work for about 30 years. I Uh, My roots are up in northern Maine, where I bought about 250 acres up there, a a former water mill site, and we restored the old water mill and generated electricity to power our woodworking machinery and equipment. And so I've been doing uh, green design really consecutively ever since.
1: A few things that I see that really pique my interest, one is called holistic, organic, sustainable design explain to us what is that
3: well first of all holistic means when the design is done you really take every element into consideration simultaneously so it's not a linear process where you you kinda work from one thing to another but you really try to factor everything in in terms of solar energy efficiency using non-toxic materials certainly the clients budget the site Everything, you take that all into account simultaneously, which results in a holistic design. Now, by organic, what I mean by that is a lot of the styles and the designs are not dialistically organic necessarily so much as they are literally organic using materials like vegetated living roof systems, straw bale construction, timber frame. So you're really using organic materials as compared to processed, you know, plastics and petroleum-based products products. Sustainable simply means all of these systems are sustainable in the long run, that they are systems that can never become obsolete. They're self maintaining, self renewing, self regenerating, living systems.
1: One of the key questions that I have has to do with cost not only on typical energy efficiency items, but when it comes to looking at an entire structure. When people look at green design, and you're taking the entire approach, and again, I'll use your phrase, the holistic, sustainable design that's here, should they anticipate paying far more than the average house, or is this something that's more affordable than most people think?
3: I think the latter. It's much more affordable. I think in the past that has been somewhat the case that to try to do something alternative would, might be 20% or more than conventional construction. But over the years, I've learned a lot of techniques and there are, are new ways to do it so that... Today, the cost is for, to do something green or sustainable really is not necessarily any more expensive than conventional construction. And, this was, and I'm talking about just the front end initial cost. If you factor in the life cycle cost of the building, which are monthly heating bills, cooling bills are going to be, then it certainly is an investment from which you're going to get a very quick return. The net result is that it's actually less expensive in the long run than conventional construction.
1: Clearly, this is something I'd recommend as a builder that anyone interested in green building investigate on the front side. And I will also tell you that not every builder out there has their business keyed to green building. So you may want to look for an architect that specializes in that, such as as Fred. You may also want to find a builder that has a strong background in, in green building. These two together will allow you to spend the least amount of money and end up with the best possible product, in my experience. Fred, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate the feedback, and hopefully this will instill a little confidence in some of the folks out there who are saying, I'd like to build green, but I don't know where to start, and I really don't understand it. You provided a lot of helpful information.
3: Thank you. I appreciate it.
1: You know, Fred's well-known in his field. He really is a specialist when it comes to designing for sustainable buildings. And no matter where you live... He encourages, and I do as well, that you seek out somebody that has a background in this, not only your architect, but also your builder. There's a lot more that Fred has to bring to the table about this, and you can hear the rest of it on my website,
0: KenTheContractor.com. You know, that one word, sustainability, is something now we're seeing in so many different areas. And I'm imagining most communities uh, where people are listening to this program today, you've got folks who are involved in that particular movement, uh, whether it's with utilizing local foods, sustainable food, sustainable agriculture, uh, and also sustainable living. It's remarkable. A lot of stuff that we used to toss out is now being used in one way or another, whether it's as a building product or whether it's as a... F- a f- food source or a fuel source
1: you know you and i have been around long enough that i can make this statement and you and many of our listeners will certainly relate to this that we have seen a complete evolution not only in the building industry but the way we live and use and or dispose of things and you'll remember a campaign when we were youngsters, and many of you out there, the original Smokey the Bear campaign. Some of you will remember the original Seatbelt campaign as well. What we are seeing is that same type of campaign that's taking a generation or two to have real effect, and that is the sustainable items in our home, and our office buildings, our cars, our clothing, the way we live. And now we tend to recycle more. 30, 40 years ago, we didn't even think about it. It all went to the landfill. But now we think about recycling and reusing that same product or converting it into energy, table waste and products that come from food processing facilities from grocery stores if you will all of that is now producing methane to fuel generators to create power uh, the byproduct becomes fertilizer and potting soil and so many other items we're going full cycle newspapers and plastic and that's true in our homes and a little later I'm going to talk to you even about recycled products that are now making kitchen countertops things you would never think of but they're things that we just are beyond our imagination Heading to the IBS in the near future, the International Builder Show, this is going to be one of the hot topics this year from what I've read in advance, sustainable products, and we're going to see it in every part of building uh, in our homes.
0: Well, just think of how many things that you pick up, many of them paper products. And you'll find that little insignia on there that says this is made with recycled materials.
1: A certain percentage of post-consumer uh, recycled products. So your old checks, your old uh, notepad, all of those things now happen to be today's newspaper. Or maybe it's the new box that you just ordered some paper in, and all of that will be recycled at a later date. We need to think about the items in our home, not just recycling, but there's another word that's becoming common, repurposing. And we can talk a little more about that a little later on. But this gives you some ideas of how to use what's old and make it look new again.
0: Well, and, and in Ken's capacity also as a consultant, I know you've had a chance to do some work uh, with some folks who are looking at different sources for energy. And many of these are common materials that years ago were, as you said, tossed into a landfill or tossed into a field.
1: I've got a huge multimillion-dollar dollar a biogas plant facility that I'm working with right now. And that is taking all the things we just talked about from table scraps to waste oil to byproducts from rendering plants, dumping it into a great big uh, digester, converting that into methane gas to produce power, to produce fertilizer, both liquid and solid, and at the same time, to uh, generate potting soil, bedding material for livestock.
0: We'll have more of this at upcoming programs. We'll take a quick break. Phone lines are open if you've got a question, 800-614-2975. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. He's right here, ready to take your calls. you have a question about your home inside or out, give us a call. Ken's right here to help at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. And also, you can post your questions online at KenTheContractor.com. Our next question comes to us from Marie in Texas.
1: You know, people hit the site from all over the nation with all kinds of questions. A lot of them are repeat from things we've already answered. And uh, fencing is certainly no exception. But as you said, we get more fencing questions out of Texas. So I, I haven't really decided. Does that mean that there are issues with neighbors or there are issues with cattle crossing ranges? What's the old line about good fences, good neighbors? Make good neighbors. So apparently there are a lot of good neighbors in Texas. But this is what I thought I'd bring to air rather than just answer on the website because it's a little unusual. And many of you may not have thought much about this, but this is an individual who wants to do a fence herself. That's not what's unusual. Let me read the question. It says, I'm 60 years old and I'm going to redo my fence all around the backyard on my own. I'm considering the following. Eight foot tall. Now I said eight, not six. Most of you are accustomed to seeing six foot high privacy fences. She says eight foot tall privacy panels held by metal fence posts, so they'll be steel posts, which happen to be the requirements of her city. Apparently she can't use wood posts. They must be steel. Using a hardy plank type backer. Four by eight sheets. So this is a four by eight siding member. And for those of you that don't know uh Hardy Backer or Hardy Plank, these are that's a brand name. There are many other names out there that it's a pre finished product designed to be in the weather for a long period of time without maintenance on it. And she said held with outdoor screws, so those should be at least galvanized on uh, horizontal, four horizontal two-by-fours or two-by-sixes installed every two feet. So she thought this out. She realizes, obviously, that by code or her local ordinance, she has to have steel post. She also knows she has to have horizontal members to mount this solid sheeting to, and she's looking at two-by-fours or two-by-sixes every two feet on that. And here are her real questions, and so we're going to talk a little bit about this and offer some direction. said, one, how deep should I bury the post in concrete for this eight-foot-tall fence? Two, how thick or gauge, what a gauge should I use for the metal post uh, should I use against these Texas high winds to hold the backer board sheets in place? And three, how far apart should the post be? Now, I certainly have to give Marie credit that she has thought about all of the elements that are important in a structure, because the first thing I have to tell Marie and others here is that this really is more than a fence. It becomes an unsupported wall. The fact that it is solid, air cannot move through this as it does in open slats. Even if there's just a quarter inch between your slats, when you have wind, air can still move through those slats. This is no different than standing up a house wall on a slab and having no support, no horizontal support at the top, the ends, anywhere else of any substance, meaning that it is susceptible to the wind load, which is much lower at the ground level, and it increases with every foot as you go above the ground. So by the time you hit eight feet, you may have something that's 2 miles an hour at the bottom, maybe 10 miles an hour at the top of this 8-foot area. That's the biggest single thing I think that Marie needs to consider, and anybody with an 8-foot fence as far as the structure goes. So here are my comments as a builder, and then I'm going to suggest to you that for your area, it may be wise to spend a couple of hundred dollars with an engineer To give you the very basics, they don't have to draw it out and make it look pretty, but they can run some calculations or they may know from experience that because you're in a 30-mile-an-hour wind area, an 80, 100-mile-an-hour wind zone, maybe you're in an area subject to snow drifting. That can be a detriment to your fence as well. They will determine the information I'm going to give you. But I'm going to share with you some experience, and that's all this is that I would put those posts in the ground a bare minimum of 36 inches. A lot of you out there would argue with me and say two feet. Two feet is not sufficient when you look at the wind load on an eight-foot high structure, and that's what this is, and bury it in concrete. For me, if I'm doing it, honestly, I'm going to put it four feet in the ground because you're going to buy these in, in uh, two-foot increments when you're buying the post. So why are you going to have a cutoff of a foot? I'd put four feet in the ground, pour concrete around that post, And I would be doing this at six feet on center, not eight feet. And I would be using a minimum two-and-a-half-inch diameter, 12- or 14-gauge support post. When you look at chain-link fence, you're dealing with 18-gauge and some lighter. So you want to go heavier on this gauge because of this wind load. And as I said, six feet max on center with these posts. Be sure they're poured in concrete, they're set up, and that you're using the horizontal members tied to the post with a galvanized or a screw screw that will not break down over time in the weather. And then you want to apply your hardy board, your other members with the same thing. Because, again, it's catching the wind. That's the biggest single factor. It's not just about having your fence stand up, but it's also about protecting yourself and your neighbors from wind damage.
0: And for those who didn't hear at the beginning, Maria's in Texas. She's in Texas. And depending on if she is sitting in some of those famous Texas flatlands, I, I know I'm amazed in my little neighborhood where I live, the difference in the wind which sweeps through certain areas, uh, and I've got, I've got a whole host of pine trees which act as a wind block on, on one side. And I'm amazed that I can walk through on a windy day just different portions of my yard and feel the difference in the strength of that wind because you've got the pine trees in one place, I've got fence in the other, and something else. You've got houses, you've got structures. But if you're sitting in the middle of a field, someplace,
1: nothing to stop it.
0: Nothing to stop it. You can only imagine the force that that fence is going to have to withstand.
1: You know, she recognizes that based on the questions she raises and the way she couches all of those. She she understands that she can't just put something in the ground and expect it to stand there and look good for a long period of time. One of the things that's unusual about this is the height of the fence. Now I have relatives from. And to living me, it to... sounds like a fort. Yeah, it does. You say I have <laughs> relatives from and living in Texas, and they tell me that everything is bigger and better in yes. Texas. So maybe that's true with an eight-foot fence. But for most of you listening out there, especially if you're in a subdivision, or even if you're not, many of your county ordinances or city or town ordinances will limit your fence height to six feet. That's the reason I started this out saying this is unusual, eight feet in height, and it really becomes more of an unsupported wall. That's why I think you need to get into some engineering, basic engineering principles. If you're going to spend a bunch of money on materials and your labor, to spend an extra $200 and know that it's done for your locality. Because what works in Texas may be different in New England or South Florida or South Carolina. You may not need to spend that level of money to do something that tall if you're permitted to do it.
0: And one thing that can constantly Hits on on this show is get yourself a bunch of bids. I found this out years ago when I had to put a fence in and was putting a pool up for my kids and insurance said and the local code said you got to have a fence. So I started in the spring making phone calls to fencing companies. I couldn't find anybody who told me that they couldn't be there till August or September. And then the huge differences in the projected cost. Uh, the only other time I've encountered it is when I was looking to pave a driveway. And there were thousands of dollars of difference for basically the same product.
1: But, but you would have thought, looking at the price, that the scope of work was completely different. The quantities, the lineal footage, all of those things. And that's why we talk about this constantly. And even in, in Marie's case, she is looking to do the work herself. And that's fine if you're capable, but she's still going to be buying probably a few thousand dollars in materials. I, as a professional builder, will be taking competitive bids because... When you understand how supply houses work, you know that it might be your buddy that's there, but it's based on their inventory, what they paid for it, how long they've had it in, as to what they have to charge you for that. And you may find somebody with a little older inventory. It it could be just a week or two, but where they purchased it at a lesser price, you get a better bargain.
0: And I can't tell you the admiration I have for Marie because I've dug some fence post holes (laughs) in my life. And let me tell you, you think 24 inches is deep. Yeah. 36, 48 inches. You're talking, you're talking four feet there.
1: If you think you're going to do it with post hole diggers, you're going to be topped out on the post hole diggers. This is a job for at least a power auger and two people. Or for me, I'd be bringing in a skid loader with an auger on the back, drill the hole, go to the next one.
0: Yeah. Save some
1: time, save some
0: money. It is a heck of a job. Tough job. Congratulations, Marie, if you can pull that off. We've got to take a break. We'll be right back with more. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Our phone number is 800-614-2975. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.